People move to New York City for a variety of reasons. For a new job on Wall Street, to make it on Broadway, to go to college. But for novelist, playwright, and activist Joseph Caldwell, it was largely about finding sexual freedom. Hi, I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Joseph Caldwell's new memoir, In the Shadow of the Bridge, details his life as a gay man and love-struck writer in New York City. His story captures the before, during, and after the AIDS epidemic, taking us all the way back to when you can rent an apartment in New York City for a mere $24 a month. Joseph, thanks so much for being with us. Glad to be here. The New York City you write about in this book is very different than the New York City we live in today. In fact, you say the New York you wrote about no longer exists. You're from the Midwest originally. When did you come to New York City? I came to New York. I got here on October 12, 1950. And um, I came here to uh, to be a writer. And... Uh, uh, and not long after, and the thing that that amazed me about it was that uh, uh, New York was a cheap, it's an inexpensive city to live in. You paid what twenty four dollars a month for your yes, apartment? I, yeah, well, the apartment that uh, I'm talking about, and when I, I come by that title quite legitimately, because the apartment that I lived in not long after I got here was a tenement. It was angled against the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, and um, on a very small street called Hague Street. And it was in such a way that if you it came to my house, it was a ritual. If you came to my apartment, it was a floor through. It was a big kitchen, nice big kitchen. I could put six people around the table in the middle. And a bathtub was in the kitchen. And then there was a bedroom with enough space for the bed and my desk, dresser, everything, and then a living room. And that was... $24 a month. <laughs> and now it was what was called the cold water flat, and which meant that, there, strangely enough, there was plenty of hot water, but you, there was no central heating. But I had a Franklin stove, and it was very romantic to heat myself with a Franklin stove. But what I was t- started to tell you was that when you would come to my apartment, if you were to come for the first time, there was a ritual. And that is that you would stand on my toilet seat, reach out the window, and you could touch the stones of the Brooklyn Bridge. Literally. Literally. <laughs> you could touch the venerable foundation stones of, of the bridge. Sounds like the perfect apartment for someone aspiring to be a writer in New York I City know, from it the was Midwest. A, well, the, the thing was that um, the, the little street that I lived on it only was about uh, one car wide, and it was about a third of a block long angled toward the bridge. And then the, it ended in a cul-de-sac, but under a great arch under that went under the bridge. So that every time I left my apartment, every time I came to my apartment, I felt like I was going under a triumphal arch huh. that uh, would take me to uh, where I was where I was living at the time. And of course, I came with my aspirations to, uh, to, 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 to be a writer. Was that the only reason you came to New York City, or was there more to it? Yes, there was more to it, because what I, also I'm gay, and um, what I knew was that there would be sexual freedom in New York that I would not find where I lived in Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. And, um, and that was an element that was, that was part of an element that, uh, that, there, that that would be. And also that there would be a, 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 a gay life, and that's what, what I had, because what I, what I mentioned in the bridge, in the, in the book, 
Uh, and that is that my whole I got here just when I was 21 years old, okay? And I had never had, since puberty, I had never had a close friend because I had a secret. And I couldn't let anybody know that I was gay because in those days, if somebody knew that you were gay, you were dismissed. You were avoided. It's as if you had leprosy or something. They would just have nothing more to do with you. So I couldn't really have any friends. So when, so when I was in school and when I was in the Air Force and everything, I had buddies, everything like that. But I had no real friends where I could just be myself. You kept everybody at an arm's length. I had, well, I had to. I had to. It was required of me. You, you couldn't do it. So but did then, you come out when you came to New York City? Did you live an open lifestyle? No. No, you had. You couldn't. And in New York, the thing was that there was a gay community. And so once you, you met, you began to meet one gay person, he would introduce you to other gay people. And before you know it, I had a whole list of, of, of wonderful, wonderful friends. I tell you how how one thing that how 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 great it was to have friends and I could I could just be myself. I could talk about it, everything. And um, one time when I think it was my second novel when it came out, and I dedicated my first novel to my brothers and my sisters. I have five sisters and two brothers, okay? I'm the seventh. And um, good Catholic family. Okay. But when I came to New York and I met all these people, second novel and I realized I wasn't going to be able to write enough novels so that I could dedicate one to each one of my friends. So I made a list of 11 friends, and I dedicated the book to the 11 people that I named on the dedication page. And it had a wonderful quotation from, from Yeats. And it was, Think where man's glory most begins and ends, and say, my glory was, I had such friends. Mm. And that was true. I did. I had friends. And it was wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Because I hadn't known it. I didn't know what it had been like. I had, I had good and very interesting buddies in school and college. And, and even when I went away to Yale at my, um, uh, uh, with my playwriting fellowship, because so, I started out as a playwright. And, 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 there, and I remember one time, one of my uh, close colleagues that... I hung out with an awful lot and everything like that. And at one time, he looked at me somewhat askance, and he, he didn't pursue the subject. And he said, he said, uh, you always, I get a feeling that you're always holding back a little bit, that you're not really completely, and I looked at him with uh, fake amazement and saying, I don't know what you're talking about or something like that, because I knew that I couldn't tell him I was gay, because that would have been the end of the, uh, of the friendship, of, of the whatever it was. In the opening to the book, you're grappling a bit with your interest in sex. You say that the life you were living was not acceptable. What issues were you facing at that time? Well, the thing was that if you, even in New York, if you were known to be gay, you could lose your apartment, you could be fired from your job. And so it was really was a guarded, it was a guarded life. And, there, and, the, and the subject was fierce. And one of the Things, one of the points I make in, in, in the book, and that is that every once in a while, for a while, the uh, city council would bring up a, a law that you could not discriminate against gays. You couldn't fire them. You couldn't uh, evict them from their apartment. And every time the cardinal, starting with Cardinal Spellman, and who was the cardinal when I got there, they would oppose it 
because that meant that you accepted homosexuality, and that was so unacceptable. So that year after year after year, um, it would always be it would always be defeated, and and I uh, and yet I persisted in being a Catholic. That's one of the central subjects that I manage in the book, is that I refuse. See, because I look upon the church as the community, that what Jesus did when he became man, God became man, what he did was that he founded the community. Everybody was related to each other through him. We we're all brothers and sisters, one to the other. And I said, look, I am, I am part of that community. The church is the community. It's the full, and the mission of the church was to fulfill that community. And I get into that too about what they did, what they did and what they didn't do to fulfill the community. They, they have yet to do it. And, but, uh, uh, but what I, uh, I, I remember, maybe I, uh, this is somewhat telling, and that is that I remember when I was at a writer's uh, retreat called the, the McDowell Colony, and I was heading out to Mass one time, and Norma Rosen, a good friend of mine, a writer, and, and she said to me, how can you be a Catholic? How can you be, be a Catholic? And I said, and it, she knew I was gay. And, and, I, and I said, Norma, if I weren't, I'd miss the tension. Mm. And, and it's true. And what I see in the book was that, uh, well, there are two things that I want to say. And one was that my, I say, surely the Almighty had a sufficient fund of grace to sustain my faith even against the repeated onslaught of a cardinal archbishop. And then I noted it to, to Norma that if I had, I, I, if I had left the, the church, if I, you know, uh, I would have missed the tension because I, because I was having a quarrel with them. And a quarrel is a form of intimacy. And it's strangely enough ironic or something like that, that the one thing for which they wanted to get rid of me for was the one thing that bound me to it, probably more so than if I weren't if I weren't gay. Does religion still play a large role in your life today? Yes, very much, very much. I'm, 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 uh, I'm. I go to mass every Sunday. I, I, I do a volunteer work in a soup kitchen, you know. And I did my work during the uh, at St. Vincent's Hospital during the during the AIDS epidemic. We're going AIDS to talk epidemic. about that. You okay. say in the book, though, Joseph, that a great hero of your life was Pope John the Twenty Third. Yes. Why he, is that? Well, because he was the one who believed in the community. See, what what happened, what I point out, and I think this might be, uh, I might get rise a little bit of wrath in some people, but what I do, I speculate, and I say sometimes I wonder whether the greatest satanic success since the eating of the Edenic apple was the conversion of Constantine to Christianity. Because what that led to was that uh, uh, Theodosius, one of his successors, what he did that was that he made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire, and it became state power. It became power, and power wants nothing so much as perpetuity and increase, and that's where the church got off the rails. When there were all these wars and everything like that, and and what happened was that we were supposed to be a community, an in, you know inclusive community that everybody, 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 and and here 
they did, and and our unity came from our caring for each other, our through 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 Jesus, through knowing that we are all together in this, like that. And then what they wanted was that they didn't want unity coming from within. What they wanted was conformity imposed from without. From, like and so that what happened with the church, we got the hierarchy, and the hierarchy, uh, what they wanted to do was to impose conformity on everybody. And you just had to go by their rules. But when John the Twenty Third came along and, and with the council, and the council defined the church as the community. And so I and that was what I had been always been believing in. And so the the inclusivity of that uh was uh, uh important. I think that he was the the great a hero of my life, yes. You talked about this great network of friends that you had here yeah. in New York City. I want to talk about one friend in particular, a lover, in fact, William Gale Gedney. Yes. You met him on the Brooklyn Bridge. At dawn. At dawn. <laughs> Tell us about Gale. He went by Gale, right? When yeah, you met well, him? he went by Gale, and then, then he came. I met him on the bridge. I was coming home from a long night long party in Brooklyn he was I don't know where he was coming from and um, I met him on the bridge and we connected was he your first lover uh yeah yeah he he wasn't the first person I fell in love with but he was my first he, he was the first person with whom I had a, a commitment of that kind and a fulfillment of that kind because he we really loved each other what was it about Gail that you loved well the first thing I loved about him was that he loved me, <laughs> and that was rather persuasive. And I thought, and I, I found that I was able to respond in kind to, to his caring. And here he was a he was a photographer, and a wonderful photographer. And he had done just finished at that time, a series of of the Brooklyn Bridge, so that we had that that in common, because the first play I ever wrote was called The Bridge. It took place on the bridge. And and it was, um, the, the thing that was wonderful was that it, um, uh, what it, it, it got me when I wrote it. I was studying at Columbia with John Gassner. And the, John Gassner, my mentor, and he was named the Sterling Chair uh, Professor for Playwriting at Yale. And he offered me a fellowship, a full fellowship at Yale. There I was, you know, going to Yale. Um, a ragamuffin from McKinley Avenue in Milwaukee, and I'm going off to Yale. And um, But I said to him, uh, I, I, it's, a, it's a graduate school, and I don't have my BA yet. And he said, well, Yale doesn't care if you don't care. I don't care. So I did. I got the fellowship, and they did my play. They did the bridge. They did the play that got hmm. me in and everything. And, and but before that, I'd go back a little bit. It had already won for me the Arts of the Theater Foundation Award. The first thing the bridge did for me was that it got me a small income for a year. And just as that was running out, I got the fellowship mm. at Yale. And they did the play there. And then I sold it to television. Okay, so the, that was that was the bridge. The bridge did did very well for me. He did very well for me. The book is divided into three sections. Yeah. And if you look at it closely, it appears that it's divided into life with Gail, life without Gail, and then life with Gail once yeah, again. Yeah, that's it. Explain that structure for us. Well, because that's the way the experience itself was. We, we were together. 
Uh, it was a, a summer. Also, we met on May 24th, May 25th, because it was morning after the... And, and um, but then by the end of uh, August, uh, he was uh, finished. It was over for him, not for me, but it was over for him. Uh, and then what happened was that I, I would run into him every once in a while, but not there was no chance that we would ever get back together again. And then uh, one time I, uh, I had some theater tickets, and I called him up, and I, I said, I have these tickets, and uh, uh, would you, do you want to go with me? And he said, yes. And then he said, I have AIDS. Mm. And by that time, I was already, um, what had happened, uh, well, I was in the supportive care program at St. Vincent's Hospital. You were working as a volunteer, yeah, helping was, people yeah, who were, were living was, with AIDS. Uh, what it was, was that um, it was the supportive care program. And a person with AIDS, if it were, they would come to the hospital for some reason, and, and they were offered if they came into the program, they got a nurse that was assigned to him or her the whole time until they died, because they all died. This is the 1980s we're talking the about, right? 1980s, mm-hmm. yeah. And um, it had a nurse, then it had a social worker to help them figure out all the different things that were available to them. and then But then there was a volunteer, and the volunteer was sort of like a buddy, and what you would do is that you, it would, what you did for the person was... Be, determined by what their needs were. If they needed companionship, if they needed, you know, you'd, you'd visit with them, you'd go, you'd watch movies with them, you'd take them on real ghost places with them, um, and um, just be available to them, whatever whatever they, and, and there were all kinds of different, because I had about, I had nine uh, over the years, about the, the years that I was there. And, and you stayed with somebody until they were all, Man that I had, and 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 uh, I I stayed with each one of them until until he died. Yeah, you made the decision to move in with Gail to become his caretaker yeah. until the very end. Yeah. What made you make that decision? You were working as a volunteer, helping people right. who were living with AIDS, right. but then you made the decision to move in with an old lover to yeah. care for him. Yeah. Why? Well, because he was the one person. Well, what 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 made it possible? See, what when we went to the, we we got together again through this movie thing, and he had told me he had AIDS, and and then I I, I just began to uh, I knew that he would never really want to get back together again. Did you still he, love him? Desperately, I missed him all that time. I wanted him more than anybody else in the world, and so I began to visit him. And at one point, he said to me, "Am I a?" What's the word he used? He said, "Am I a project?" I said, "No, you're my old friend." So I was, I was just being his friend, and and if and he, the way he would talk about people who loved him, he would be very dismissive of them, contemptuous of them for, and and so I knew that I could never bring up that I could never make any claims or anything like that. So I just did, but I, I spent time with him, and and then as his situation got worse like that. Uh, I was already spending more time with him. So I, I moved in with him because the patient that I had from St. Vincent's was doing very, very well. He was in kind of a, a uh, good good period. And he had a, a friend who would call me if I, there was, I was really needed, and I wasn't. So I stayed with him, and, and we had 
ironically enough, we had the domestic life that we didn't, that I expected or wanted us all to have, except that it was not, there was no sex involved, there was no lovemaking involved, but it it was so many shared experiences. And I was so, I I was very happy, in in a way, happy, but, and, uh, because I was with him. The ending of your book is very difficult to read as Gail succumbs to AIDS. You're with him the moment he dies. Yes. You then crawl back into bed with him under the sheets. Yeah. And you sleep with him. Was that difficult to revisit, to write? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh. To recall it all, as as I did, and to be very simple about it, like that, because I didn't want to make, uh, I didn't want to get it too uh, uh, melodramatic or anything like that. I hope I kept it very, very, very simple. It's simple, but it's powerful. See, one of the things that I mentioned in the book, uh, and will give you some uh, a measure of my feelings about him, uh, what, 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 that he had one of the. Uh, illnesses that you would get if you had AIDS was a cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma. And what it expired, what it did was that you got lesions on your body. And, and he had so many lesions just everywhere that one time when he was in the hospital, I was visiting him, and a doctor came in with some students or whatever, and he asked him to show him the, his lesions. And he took off his pajama top, and they all gasped when they saw, because they were everywhere, everywhere. Lesions were everywhere. But then I tell you this, all those lesions like that, he was still the most desirable man on the face of the earth. Mm. He was also unapologetic. He had no problem going out in public, right? No, no, he was, no. uh, Going to the theater, going to a pizzeria, going like that. No, he had no problem. Like one time when he was taking this, he lived on Staten Island, and when he was taking taking the ferry, and two teenage boys said, oh, look, he has AIDS, he has AIDS, like that. Didn't bother him. How challenging was it, Joseph, to be a gay man during this time in New York City when the AIDS epidemic was at its height? Well... How scary? It was, it was, it was frightening, of course. You had to be very... Your, your, your sex life, your, the whole sexual freedom, the liberation like that, that had sort of come along. It was obliterated and also you you, lost, you were losing friends and the thing though that uh, about the the program that I was in at the board of care I will be endlessly grateful that I was able to do something during that time when I had the patients that I had and that of course I was allowed to be with uh, with Bill who, who changed his name to Bill Gail asked I, to be called I, Bill after yes, a while called mm-hmm. Bill. so so that uh, my gratitude to St. Vincent's is immeasurable because they gave me a chance so that, that I was able not to just, as I say, uh, I could just wring my hands or weep or even pray like that. I, I was actually involved. I did something. I met some very, very interesting, wonderful, wonderful people uh, during that time. And uh, my gratitude is, is endless. You were one of the original writers for the soap opera Dark Shadows. <laughs> and you helped create the character Barnabas Collins, a yes. sympathetic, reluctant vampire. Yes, 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 yes. How did that all come about? Well, what happened was that um, Ron Swoten and I were two of the writers on the show. And the Dan Curtis was the head of the, uh, 
was the producer of Dark Shadows. And we'd been, we would go through long plotting sessions with him. And, and it was wonderful because he was challenging it always and he really wanted to make the show better and we got along fine. And one time after, at the end, we were walking out the door after a very extensive and exhausting thing and sort of just by way of a farewell, he said, oh, he said, I want a vampire for the kids for the summer. And so we kept walking out and we got it and said, what's what a vampire? It's a, it's a, it's a serial killer. You find out who's the vampire, put a stake through his heart, and you move on to the next show. And so and we were, and so what we did, we went off to a gay bar on 23rd Street between 6th and 7th Avenue, no, 7th and 8th. And we were drinking dry bourbon Manhattans. We're talking about it. And what we decided that what we would do was that he didn't like to be a vampire. And what we, and, and where this came from was that because we were both gay and we knew what it was like to be excluded from the human family, that you were rejected because of, of who you were. And so we made him that he didn't like doing what he, what he did and, he, and that he was somebody who could never have a shared love. And, and, and we brought this in and we had something to write about. Mm-hmm. And the show had something, and it took off. That's yeah, what, he was that, super popular, that, Barnabas Collins. That's what, that's what, <laughs> and the thing is that it was um, a, a wonderful irony that his grand, that uh, uh, Dan Curtis was a homophobe, and that his greatest success came with uh, something that was inspired by the two gay writers on his uh, uh, thing. You also wrote for another soap opera, The Secret Storm. Oh, yes. Okay. What does it take to write a good soap opera, in your opinion? Well, the same thing. Uh, uh, that Writing is writing. What you have to do is you have to be interesting. Well, uh, you may very well be the only genre soap opera writer who is also the recipient of the Rome Prize for Literature. You received that award for your work in such dark places, right? Yes, I didn't get it for Dark Shadows. <laughs> <laughs> that led you to live and write in Rome for a while, right? Uh, well, it was wonderful because uh, uh, one time I, I had gone to Rome. Uh, I, was, I went to Italy. I went to Europe with some friends. And then when they went home, I went to Italy because I was an Italophile. And, and I was in... I loved Rome. I visited Rome all by myself, but I loved it. And I said, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to write a lot of television, and I'm going to make enough money so that I can come back to Rome for a year and just do my own writing. Well, I got home, hated writing for television, quit. That was the end of it, like that. Okay, I wrote my novel. That A year after it came out, I got a phone call. And the voice said, may I speak to Joseph Caldwell? And I said, this is he. Thank God I didn't say this is him. I said, this is he. Mm. And he said, this is John Cheever. And I said, oh. And he said, are you interested in the Rome Prize? And I said, well, yes, of course. He said, well, you got it. I was going to go back to Rome for a year and just write if that's what I wanted. I, look, look I, 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 I get everything I want. <laughs> <laughs> so, What's your advice for young writers today? Be confident enough to write what you really want to write. When I was teaching, that was the first thing I would tell my students. I'd say, what, I'm, what I want to do, the one thing I want to do, is to give you enough confidence in yourself so that you will 
write what you really want to write. Because there's nothing worse that could happen to a writer, and that is to come to a certain point in your life and say, I never really wrote what I wanted to write. What are you working on now? Well, I uh, just I recently gave my agent a <laughs> a young adult book. Uh, do you know how old I am? I do not know exactly how old you are. Oh, I'm 91. 91. I'm 91. Okay. And I just gave my editor, and she has sent out a young adult book. So <laughs> I, I'm celebrating my 90th birthday by writing a young adult book. So I'm eager to know what like that. And, and I well, get the sense that you are not 91 in your mind, Joseph. I, I don't dwell on it. It, <laughs> it, it. it has no reality. I, I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means. It, I don't pay any attention to it. And uh, although I'm aware of certain diminishments like that, I don't have the energy like that. But now I'm working on a, bo- a novel that I wrote about the epidemic and, and uh, never really got it the way I really wanted it, so mm. it never went out like that. And I've, I've gone back to that, and I'm, I'm, I'm working on that now. I always, I'm, I'm always working on something. Well, in the meantime, folks can read In the Shadow of the Bridge. Joseph Caldwell, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for putting up with me. Joseph Caldwell's In the Shadow of the Bridge is available now. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Laura Babiak and Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. Thanks so much for listening. 